0: everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. Delighted on this episode to be talking with someone who's worked in uh, the world of comics and animation, the worlds of Hanna-Barbera, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, Shout out to my friend Isaiah, because this is also a person that's worked on All Dogs Go to Heaven, the TV show. Uh, And then there's also the book Art and Inventions of Max Fleischer that is out in the world. And uh, so the person I'm talking with is Ray Pointer. May I call you Ray? Is that okay?
1: All my life
0: all right great great well ray thank you for jumping in and joining uh and so i guess as an opening question i'm curious about what led you to visual storytelling
1: well that's become a (laughs) recent popular term to uh rebrand i guess um the field of animation and cartoons and that sort of thing and i guess it's Uh describing it but i i uh I cite the impressions I had in early television. And one of the things that got me particularly attracted to the Fleischer cartoons is because I saw them when they were first sold to TV. It was in 1956. Uh uh I saw them when they were the first generation on on television. And primarily the out of the Inkwell films, because I was fascinated by the many things that would come out of the, the tip of the the, the pen and that sort of thing. And that created an interesting drawing for me, even though I knew it was trick photography and everything, but the inventiveness of those films fascinated me when I was a preschooler. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. And then the following year, uh, the Popeyes came on television. Uh-huh. And of course I watched them, you know, as long as they were on for seven years, trying to figure out how did they do things and so forth. And they were always fascinated yeah
0: yeah absolutely and animation is just uh it's an immersive medium and there's just a magic to it and it really is a very very cool thing that continues to grab my students um so have there been creators artists uh that currently have your attention at the moment that you're exploring
1: you know to tell you the truth since i've been retired going on 23 years I've kind of fallen out of that, although when I was teaching, there were a few of the uh, contemporary creators that my students were following, and that sort of kept me on to that. But to tell you the truth, I'm sorry to say that I just don't have time to keep up with the current trend. I I sort of see things here and there. I just don't have time for it, simply because for the last several years, as you probably know, I've been involved with the restoration project, Mm -hmm. of cartoons. And that is really taking up a great deal of my time, which I enjoy doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that's most gratifying about all this effort is that every time we go out to these shows, there's an, there's a, an enthusiastic crowd. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, not only is it an opportunity to expose my book, but the questions that come up bring up more uh, perspectives on a lot of these issues that you might not have thought of before. And so it gets me to rethink about how the story can be told because I am working on a revised edition. Nice, and it nice. because after you do all of the, the, the work to research all these things and try to get all these details, there's still going to be something that you can't quite answer. Uh-huh. The challenge about this whole thing is simply because it's been a jigsaw puzzle putting this whole thing together. Yeah. And I can go on record by saying I've been at the head of the line of this more than anybody. I'm not ashamed to say that. I don't care if some people don't like it because this goes back not only to 1956 when I was a kid, I practically lived this thing. Uh uh Uh, It goes back to my first professional exposure in 1967. And there's a coincidence there because I'm going to backtrack a little bit going back to when I was a preschooler. And Out of the Inkwell, as I said, inspired me. And it made such an impression on me that I had a dream that I was watching Out of the Inkwell the next morning. Wow. the Living room and everything. And I was so fascinated that I wanted to get closer. So like Alice through the looking glass. I stepped through the television screen into a black and white world. And I met Max Fleischer in his office. Wow. That's cool. And he was at a teacher's desk and he was in a captain's chair that swiveled and he was wearing a herring herring bone pattern victorian suit mm-hmm. uh-huh. he turned around stopped what he was doing and picked me up and sat me on his lap and talked to me like an old uncle <laughs> said, oh, ray i'm glad that you came to see me now here's my celluloid triangle that i use and here's my wheel pen, and here's my t-square and he said, now I'm going to bring out the ink well and the clown's going to come out. And I wanted to see the clown. So he worked stop a lot. And Coco stuck his head out and looked around and looked his eyes. And he looked at me and ducked down with a little splash. And I wanted to see the clown. So I went to reach for the ink bottle. And as I pulled it towards myself, it sort of caught on the desk and tipped a little bit. And a splash of ink came up. And Max jumped up in a reflex. And I woke up. And I'd fallen out of bed one leg, Tangled up into the little, sort of like little Nemo in Slumberland, you know the last panel of that where he's falling out of bed. Well, that
0: uh-huh.
1: so that was my introduction. Then when I overturned Max Fleischer's famous inkwell, well, little did I know that ten years later this was going to come full circle. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So if you know the basic story that after the studio ended, Max came to Detroit and was in charge of the animation department at Jam Handy in Detroit. And so I was interviewing for a job there during the summer in 1967, this was in June. And I was showing a production of The Wizard of Oz that I started when I was 12. I spent about three years doing it with cutouts. And I was fascinated by the 3D effects that were in the Fleischer cartoons. I tried to figure out my own way of doing the same thing. Uh-huh. And so I these things with layers of glass. And so I had the parallax effect going. And I used lighting so that I had natural shadows working and everything like that. So I had the camera moving in and out and, and sideways pans and that sort of thing. And so while I was showing it in the camera room, people started drifting in because I had my sound on tape. And people were curious about what was going on in there. So I had a full audience standing in the back. Well, later on, when the lights came on, there were these two little square-shaped short short little men standing in front. And the department manager, Bob Kennedy, said, I want to introduce you to two pioneers in the animation industry, Frank Goldman and his very best friend, Max Fleischer. Uh, uh, Wow. And it turned out Max was on his way to Expo 67, and he stopped off to see Friends at Jam Handy. And Max saw this experiment that I was showing. And do you know, he spent 20 minutes talking to me. Wow. And that is 20 minutes I'll remember for the rest of my life.
0: A connection to cartooning history.
1: So yeah. to um, right the wrong of upsetting Max's famous inkwell, <laughs> I started gathering all these anecdotes from people who were still at Handy's Who uh, remembered working for him. And I thought somebody needs to document these things. So that's when I started then. Uh And then when I graduated high school in 1970 and started college, that's when I went in full force and did the formal research starting then.
0: Uh, I I imagine it's been a journey of a lot of discoveries, a lot of surprises uh, as you've gone.
1: That's correct. Because after two years, uh, I originally started started out to do a documentary. And what stopped me was that there were too many important films that were lost then. Uh Uh And so I figured, well, I've got all this information. Why don't I start a book? So Max passed away in September of 1972. And a month after he had died, I interviewed his daughter, Ruth Nitel. And she told me that Leslie Pavarga was writing his book. So she put me in touch with him. So I figured, well, since he's already starting the book, I may as well see where he is on that and see if I can help. Yeah. And yeah. so it turned out, in fact, I'm going to back back up a little bit on that. Ruth asked me, why do you want to do this anyway? And the answer that came to me was, I guess I've always liked jigsaw puzzles. Uh, uh-huh. And she laughed and she said, that's about right, because my dad's life is something of a jigsaw puzzle. And the reason being is because there was no really any formal documentation about what he had done everything was just recollections and everything like that but the main challenge though is that other than a few newspaper articles most of the records of the studio were destroyed in december of 1941. so wow. that was the real challenge about trying to put all these pieces together based on what you could find
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: so when i got a hold of leslie Cabarga it turned out that the timing was just right because he had talked to some of the the brothers and interviewed them, but I had details about the inventions and the workings of the studio and that sort of thing, and the Helen Kane lawsuit and the strike. And so I freely gave him my college notes and I figured I don't care as long as this helps make the book as good as it can be because it's the first one that's ever been done. And the whole purpose of doing this is to open up the spectrum of animation history because everything had been concentrated on the Disney accomplishments uh-huh. and totally ignoring or sweeping under the rug or overshadowing what had come before. And Max was really a major pioneer in this this field, and he was overshadowed by the accomplishments of Max. And the same thing that happened to Windsor McKay. Uh-huh. And so that was really the primary reason for doing this, to bring Max into the, the spotlight as well and get him out of the shadow of, of Disney. Because in all due respect, Disney really capitalized on the foundation that, that Max had created. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's not to say that, that uh, either one was better than the other, because actually their, their approach to animation was totally different. And so it's not to say that Disney defined the animation medium, it was his approach to it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think at this point in time, people are, are are rediscovering this and appreciating it more simply because they have been just so saturated for decades about the Disney approach to animation that they're realizing this is not the only way. Yeah. And so because the, the Fleischer approach was just so bizarre and so different, that's why they're really appreciating it because they're really getting it. They were realizing that that Max's approach and his people was not to be so literal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's one of the things that Max said, if it can be done in real life, it isn't animation.
0: Love it, love it. That uh, that creativity and kind of a surrealism.
1: Right, and as a matter of fact, it's funny you brought that up because I just finished one of the videos dealing with that subject
0: ah, and
1: the first week of march we are doing a five-day presentation for the museum of modern art each day is a different theme and one of the themes is exploring the surrealistic aspect so i just finished that this weekend
0: oh wow well well good timing um and i'll make sure this is out well in advance of that um so folks want to to check that out where can they find information about about that event about the project?
1: Uh, look for the Flesher Studios website. Mm-hmm. All
0: right. Uh, and, pre- and
1: also, yeah. and also on my Facebook page too. Uh, the the Fleischer Facebook folio page. Yep
0: yeah, that that you anticipated my question. I was going to say and social media and things like that. So yeah yeah great.
1: We, we like to call it social media instead of anti social media.
0: That's right. Sorry. That's right. Well, and you feature cartooning and animation, which I think is I think art is the best thing to experience on social media anyway. So uh mm. yeah, I appreciate that a lot. You,
1: you know, it's funny you brought that up simply because one of the things that I bring up at a lot of these these our presentations that we've been doing is that the the attitude about animation between Disney and Fleischer was so different in the fact that I came to the realization when you follow Disney's history and you know that he he went broke in Kansas City trying to crack the animation market. There are other uh-huh. reasons why uh, the company went broke anyway. He really didn't have enough experience really to be any competition to the established studios in New York. Uh-huh. So when he went out to California, he lived with his uncle Robert on Kingswell Avenue in Los Angeles and his uh, uncle was a real estate agent. And he originally went out there with the ambition of being a live action film director. And so when Margaret Winkler saw that pilot film he made called Alice's Wonderland, where he put the live action girl in a cartoon environment, she bought a series without even seeing his facilities. And the joke (laughs) was his facilities was the garage behind his uncle's house. And so then, when he got the contract, his uncle gave him a corner in his real estate office over at Kingswell in Vermont, and that's where the Disney Studios started until they bought that corner lot over at Hyperion, and uh, and Griffith Griffith Park Avenue, Griffith Park Boulevard, and then that's where they started out. But um, what I reasoned was that he was using animation to fulfill his ambitions to be a live-action film director. And that's what he was doing when he did the first series of the Alice comedies. He was directing the live action girl to work with the the animation that they they did around her. Uh And as you see him developing, you can see that there was a lot more of a a concentration on what actors were doing. And he studied Chaplin and all of the, the silent movie comedians and that sort of thing, and a lot of concentration on acting. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And so a a lot of his his uh, aspirations seemed to be to bring animation into a realization of an extension of cinema, which is what he was doing really. Yeah. Yeah. And Max's approach was that animation or animated cartoons were an extension of the comic strip. Uh
0: huh.
1: And the best example I can show that supports that is when the it's, when the, the the question comes up about, in the Flesher cartoons, pre-1939, why is there sequences where the, the mouths are animated, particularly when they're singing, or there's on-purpose dialogue, uh-huh. and then there are these ad-libs where the mouth isn't moving? And I said, I think I have the explanation for that. I came up with the term that's called um it's my term, I can't remember it. <laughs> um in, in, in comics, they had um thought balloons. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. And so the, these are our um uh animated uh thought balloons in, in
0: essence sort of like that internal narration kind of right, moment right
1: right right. you know like 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 you're hearing their thoughts uh, uh-huh. and so uh yeah they're they're sort of like uh, articulated uh, uh uh thought balloons
0: that's a cool idea yeah. yeah and i love that linking between comic strips and animation that's that's a really cool connection right yeah and
1: that, that's something that the, the, the audience gets a kick out of, you know, it's sort of like a self-realization or um, a self-consciousness. Uh-huh. And again, those were based on ad libs when uh, Jack Mercer and, and Mae Questell were doing the cartoons. And then um, these were just things that, that occurred to them on the spot when they were doing the, the recordings. And another thing, too, is a lot of it was done post-sync. But I've come to the realization, having listened to them again and again, it was a combination of two, the two, because when you think about the, the practicality, there's the only way that you could get the articulate, animated uh, lip sync by pre-recording, especially for the singing. Uh-huh. And so I can hear where they actually had a combination of mixes, uh-huh. and 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 cut in pre-recorded dialogue
0: wow yeah and that that speaks to your knowledge and experience in the medium sort of like a musician hearing an instrument in an orchestra right
1: and another thing too is that uh, that's fascinating is that in some of the cartoons up until the mid-30s they were lifting off from 78 rpm records and i found some of them But what I'm trying to pin down, though, is there are six records that were used in uh, swinging centers from 1930. Uh Now, I was fortunate that I had access to the records at Paramount. And the cue sheets that were registered when they recorded the soundtracks, they all had to be registered with Western Electric, which was the licensed sound system that they recorded on. So every piece of music is credited on those music cue sheets. So for that particular cartoon, the songs are registered as far as who the uh, composers were, but not a credit to the 78s that were used, just the songs. Yeah. But you can hear the needle drops when they, they occurred. And so listening to them, I can hear where... There was a combination of in studio original recordings for the sound effects, and there are a couple of, of um new music cues that they recorded in studio that were not on those original recordings. Uh-huh. Because the quality of the recordings of the in-studio recordings is much better than what was what was on those records. They're uh-huh. clean. Because even in 1929 and 1930, we have had the, the good graces to go back to their original negatives. Uh And those recordings are amazingly a lot better than you'd think they were. And one of the reasons being is because there was a lot more sound information on those recordings than what was reproducible in those times. But the information was there, Uh simply because the technology of variable density was basically an FM signal that was photographed.
0: Oh wow! Huh. So
1: that information was there, and with uh, modern equipment, that uh, that audio range can be reproduced, and they're amazingly clean and a lot broader than you would think they were. They were.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, it sounds like a, a meticulous process that you go through as you're uncovering, sort of the the ensembles that are part of these uh, films.
1: Right, and again, listening to something that early in 1930 in Swing You centers, I can hear where they must have transferred over from the 78s and then assembled them on a 35 millimeter master to work uh-huh. from. They had to because the, 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 the mouth movements are too exact. Uh-huh. They had to, to have been broken down. So you had to have had them on a 35 millimeter soundtrack to analyze. And then everything is in interlock because it was just too exact. Wow. Interesting. And, then, and then they they did the, as I said, the sound effects and a couple of other cues that they did in studio. How I know that is because I went to the music cue sheets and I saw a couple of cues that are not on those records huh. that they did in studio. And that explains why they were too clean uh-huh. to off from the 78s. And you can also hear splices where they had cut together the the transfers of the 78s. Wow. Huh. So it's just a little too exact. It's not like they were meticulously queuing up these 78s and so forth. No, because the chance for it being miscued is too great. Uh Uh Uh-huh. So they actually had to have cut them together on 35 millimeter in order for them to have been that exact.
0: Uh So, so, is that one of the questions in one of the areas that's uh, currently part of your focus?
1: Yes. Yes. Having, well, I'm working on that now. And when I listened mm-hmm. to it again and I went back to the cue sheets, I figured, figured that out. I said, wait a minute, I've heard this enough times. And these two music cues are definitely not on those records. They sound like they're too clear. Uh-huh. That's because they did them in studio, just like the sound effects are too clear. And you're familiar with the cartoon, I know.
0: Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. You remember during the um the, the graveyard sequence where that little Jewish stereotype figure comes up and he says, You needed it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh well that was done in studio, that wasn't on that record, huh? And the music cue that's at that point is Mazel tov That wasn't on that 78. Huh. They did it in studio and mixed it in.
0: That's it. As you're talking about that, it's also just amazing to me how fast um, the film industry innovated and grew. I mean, a hundred years, just a little over a hundred years ago. Well, well, within two years,
1: they really came up with uh, mixing abilities and they were doing it as early as 1930. This proves that they were able to mix several tracks, maybe two or three tracks, but definitely they did the, the um, auxiliary music cues that I mentioned, as well as the sound effects in mm-hmm. studio. And those were mixed with those 78s.
0: Wow. So as you're, as you're digging through and exploring questions, um, are there sort of next steps in the research agenda that you're uh, looking to tackle as you're looking at how these have come together?
1: Yeah, I'm still trying to find out what, what those 78s were uh-huh. because other than some of them saying Negro spirituals or something like that, I do know that OK the OK label put out some of those types of records. And so that might be one source depending on how complete those records are. And I'm talking about written records, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, about their recordings, having to dig through those during the period between 1928 and 1930. But what's interesting, though, is the selection of those records in the first place. And that goes back to Lou Fleischer. Because when he was brought in to be the head of the music department, it started with him working with a 78 RPM record of um, Eddie Peabody playing the banjo. And uh, The story had it that on the way home, he was riding the L and because of the the crowd and everything swaying back and forth, the record broke when it was under his arm. So he was in a panic and had to get off and find a record shop and find Mm -hmm. another copy. And he worked on it at home and played it on his record player at home as late as he could. And he couldn't complete all of it. So he turned it in to Dave and he said, I'm sorry, but this is as much as I could do working up until the late hours and not disturbing the neighbors. He said, said, this is great. This will keep an animator busy for a month. Uh, uh And so that was the beginning of it. So then when um, they started their music department, naturally all these publishers wanted to have exposure of their songs and everything. And he was inundated by all of this music and everything. And and his office was stacked with all these 78 RPM records. So Uh he made the selections of the music that was used. So when they were using the 78s he was the one who selected those records that they used.
0: interesting, interesting.
1: And one of the cartoons that I know that you're very familiar with is um Betty Boop and Grampy. huh
0: uh-huh. And
1: at the end there, when you know when he rigs up those the the, the the rigs there that play the music for them, uh-huh. well, that record was the the um, Maple City Four playing the Tiger Rag. that was a 78. And again, they they had that record as the the background. And then in studio, they dubbed over the sound effects and the actors. Uh And of course that kind of covered up the the rough surface noise of the record, you don't hear it as much. But I found that record. And another example is The Kids in the Shoe was a Smiley Burnett novelty record, Mama Don't La Music. Uh They edited it though. They edited it. And so I posted a an extent the extended full version of it on the Fleischer Facebook folio page. Uh Uh, And then there was another one at the end of um, Betty Boop MD. And it was Red Pepper Sam, also known as the William Costello, who was the first voice of Popeye.
0: Ah, uh, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Lot of, so many historical was, overlays.
1: And it was one of his records that was used at the end of Betty Boop MD. But then, again, it was it was edited. Huh.
0: So, so you mentioned the Facebook page there. Um, as folks are listening... Uh, is that a good way to connect with you if they want to get in touch and share information or find information? Yes.
1: yes, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, well, Ray, I appreciate what you're doing in the world of animation and, and film. I appreciate the, the career that you've had and the research that you're currently, it sounds like, staying very, very busy with.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is that uh... – I've been vowing to write another book, Mm -hmm. but it's about my experiences, and I already have the title, A Charmed Life" because of all the paths that I crossed growing up, and I had a magical childhood, and I had the good fortune to actually grow up through the wonder years, Uh (laughs) and so uh, I really have that to look back on, and uh, it was just, I was just in awe of some of the people that I came in, in touch with. It was just Mm -hmm. unbelievable. But the thing of it is, knowing them as people, they were just people like you and me. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Just trying to make a living, you know.
0: (laughs) And making history at the same time. But yeah. yeah. (laughs) They weren't
1: thinking about that. They were too busy just trying to do their work. Mm -hmm. And enjoying what they were doing.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, looking forward to the book to be charmed life looking forward to that and uh who knows what where the story goes from there and, and who takes up the story and explores further so well, it's um... the
1: ongoing story oh by the way i have this sweatshirt on that says there it really is a kalamazoo <laughs> nice, nice. there's a story behind that because for three years kalamazoo uh it, as an extension of western michigan university hosted the kalamazoo animation festival Mm, mm -hmm. i was a a guest presenter and speaker there all week and i put on a Fleischer show and was on panels and that sort of thing so uh that was sort of a uh a warm-up so to speak for what we're doing now
0: love it love it um well i i appreciate your your historical voice and the meticulous attention, and appreciate the time that you've taken to share with me about the process and uh, the passion that you have.
1: Well, you gotta love it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But I found that that was true. And another thing too that's uh, sort of amazing. I'm going to share this with you. When I was at Film Roman, Bernie Wolf, who I give credit to, actually having a hand between him and Seymour Nightell. They were handed Betty Boop for the transformation from, from being the canine character to transforming her into the human girl character that we all know. Even uh-huh. though Ken Natwick created the prototype for the character, he had already left. And so that transformation for her being the character as we know her was really in the hands of Seymour Nytel and Bernie Wolfe. And that uh-huh. I up in my book now that's a story that nobody has been been telling well i'm telling that good, so, good um the reason why i'm bringing this up is because uh bernie wolf was still working until he passed away oh. and he was producer on bobby's world at film roman when i was working there in 1991
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and so they put me in an office across the hall from him and they assigned me to do cleanup work for him. And I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> because I knew his history. And I'm thinking, are you sure? <laughs> because I wanted to make sure that my line quality was going to be up to the standards that that, that he was used to. Uh-huh. Because knowing that he had been at Fleischer's, that he had redesigned Betty Boop, And worked for uh, works and then worked, went to Disney and was there for a number of years and on and on and on his history. Okay. So I did some work for him and and then I went over there and I said, here it is, you know.
0: <laughs> Hoping but, for the best.
1: Yeah, and you know, I hope I can find it, but um, he gave me this mechanical pencil I still have it here. Well, I can't find it now. But anyway, I still have that mechanical pencil that he gave me. Uh-huh. And he said, he gave me the most wonderful compliment about my life. I said, oh, I, I could never get lines as nice like this. He said, I want to give you something. He gave me that mechanical pencil. So later on, when I I I videotaped some interviews with him, and I said, Bernie, I still have that pencil. It's been my good luck charm. He said, give it back. <laughs> I said, oh, no. But it's a, I said no, I I, I I it's been my good luck John, and uh I still have it. Believe me, I still have it. I just <laughs> I believe have to you. <laughs> show it but, and it's here.
0: Oh, oh very cool, very cool. And um yeah, your your work lives on and glad to hear the work that you're doing in preserving animation as well.
1: Well, I think a lot of people of my generation, they were inspired by a lot of that stuff we saw on TV. We saw the old theatricals. And there was a a group of us in Detroit that felt the same way, some a little bit younger than me, some of them around the same age. And we both felt that there's got to be a return to an interest in quality theatrical animation. And I wanted to learn how to do that. Uh, uh and we were right we were right that, that in predicting the animation renaissance of the uh late 1990s where there was a return to quality full animation uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I was fortunate to arrive when that was going on and I wanted to learn those secrets too and and uh I learned quite a lot I I wasn't there long enough and I'm certainly not qualified as a Disney animator, but uh, I learned a lot of things and there was a lot to be learned to be an assistant. I was at least qualified to be an assistant. Uh Uh I didn't mind reworking animators work because I learned a lot in the process. Yeah, And to get the approval of professionals and to be recognized as one of them and to be taken in in the peer group, Uh that's a tremendous... It's a tremendous compliment. And I was in the animation peer group in the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences.
0: Very, very cool. Not bad company at all. <laughs> no, it's not. But And it's
1: not not anything that I took for granted. Mm-hmm. And I was always on edge to make sure that I was good enough. I was realistic about what I knew I was able to do And if I knew that it wasn't right for me or if I wasn't strong enough, I'd say, thank you for the opportunity. But you know what? I think that you ought to call so-and-so because I think that's the person that you want. Uh Rather than for me to just take the job and not do a good job Uh Uh because that doesn't do me any good for my reputation. And it certainly does not do them any good because if they're going to have to hire somebody to do the work over that I did then I'm not taking the the money under the good pretenses. I'm taking money under false pretenses. It's not honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, wonderful, wonderful view of collaboration there and uh, some humility on your part as well, it sounds like.
1: (laughs) But one thing for sure, though, that after a period of time, you know what you can do. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, that also helps you in knowing whether somebody is going to try to sway you the wrong way or intimidate you or something like that. Uh And I Uh I had to stand my ground and say, you know something, I've been on this show a year. I've done 60 episodes. Yeah. When I was at Nickelodeon, we had a new director that came on. And I said, well, that's very interesting because he said to me, well, I understand you haven't been doing this very long. I said, well, you told me about your background and I'm going to tell you about mine. And I have been doing this for quite a while. As a matter of fact, I've been on this show for a year. I know this show. I have 60 episodes behind me. After a while, you you gain professional confidence in anything that you're doing. Uh-huh. And that's as long as you don't get too arrogant about. You know, but at the same time, sometimes it's necessary to have faith in your professional experience and not allow somebody to intimidate you. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people that get worked up about that and, and uh, somebody can be wrong about the way they're treating, you, especially if you're doing something for their benefit. Yeah. And that was this particular case when this new director came on to CapDog. And uh, I was working with another, we were, they called us animation timers, animation sheet timers. It was an extension of being an animation director because we were doing what the animation directors uh, uh, traditionally used to do anyway. Uh, uh Because There was just so much work being done that they created a sub category of animation directors that they called animation timing directors or whatever sheet timers. But that's what we were doing. Tim Long was my associate. So the two of us were doing assistant directing on episodes of Uh, uh CatDog. A new director came on who was a friend of the new producer. And he was telling us all about his background. He had come from Disney TV. And he had a background... Of uh, being somebody to avoid, if you know what I mean. Uh Uh Coming down the hall and they jump in the doorways and everything, because I heard that from one of the other directors who had worked with him over there. I said, I'm not going to get out of his way if he comes down the hall. I'm not going to be afraid. So anyway, he was telling us all about his background, all that, and then he said to me, "Well, I understand you have been doing this very long." And I said, "Well, no, you don't." Because I have to have had an animation background in order to qualify for this. And I have a year on this series. I've done 60 episodes. So if you'll just relax, you'll be very happy with what the work that I do for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: and you know, And,
1: and it turned out he was the most difficult director to work with because. He was the one who insisted on using all these non-standard commands. So I went out of my way to write them exactly the way that he noted them on the storyboards, even though they were not the, the, the language that we used. But because he insisted on doing it that way, I tried to carry it out for him. And so as it was, it took more time to do it his way, but I did it and I didn't complain. So then um, sometime after that, my supervisor came to me and said that this director had been complaining to the producer about my work. Uh-huh. And I said, well, he's right across the way there. Why doesn't he talk to me about it? Because he's the director. Uh-huh. He's tell me what he wants. And I said, I'm not complaining, but a lot of the stuff that he's giving me is incomplete. And I'm picking up the slack on the things that he's supposed to be giving me right at the same time i'm just picking up the slack so i can go forward and do what i have to do so if he's not going to be good enough to talk to me and go to the the producer and complain to me behind my back which i don't appreciate he's not going to get me fired over that that's an hr issue Uh Uh so i said he said well i've been defending your work i said russ you know full well I've been on this show long enough. I know more about this show than the director. We had five directors. i worked on more episodes than any one director alone. Hmm. Because they come to me and I tell them about the continuity, knowing what the characters do from one episode to the other so that we have continuity. Yeah. So I said, I'll handle it my way. So I went to the production manager and I told her that I had been over backward to work with this director and he can't be decent enough to communicate directly to me to tell me what he wants, then I don't want to work on another one of his episodes. In fact, I'm already assigned to one of his episodes. Would you please take me off on that episode and give me another assignment? She put me on another episode. Two weeks later, the color footage comes in on that episode. Now, my associate was working on his half of that show. I was off from it from that point. So the film came in on a Friday, and the people in the background department saw it before the producer did. So they saw it on Friday, and I saw what the problems were. Well, Monday, the producer saw it, and he called me in. And he said, I'm concerned about your footage dropping. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, because whatever they give me, I turn it in and we haven't missed any shipping dates. Uh And I turn in the footage reports. So whatever I'm given, I'm I'm turning in, but it's my understanding that I'm supposed to be working on one episode in one week. And lately, I've been getting parts of different episodes in one week. You're not supposed to be doing that. That's against the, the contract. I'm supposed to be assigned to one episode per week, not parts of different episodes in one week. That goes back to the 1930s, which is why SAG was, was one of the reasons why SAG was organized. hmm uh-huh. uh-huh. So you're supposed to be working on one episode in one week, not parts of different ones during the same week. And I said, I haven't complained about that, but I want you to know, you as a producer, you're not supposed to be doing that. So um, he tried some intimidating tricks on me, like, um, well, you're not doing 90 feet a day and so forth. I said, you can't expect me to do 90 feet a day consistently when you give me the most complicated scenes. I said, as a matter of fact, it took me until lunch to finish the first three scenes of the opening of that one episode because of all these complicated uh fake multiplane setups that you've got and double exposed shadows and everything that are all part of the whole thing and so forth, and that's the opening of the episode. Huh. I don't want you spending that much time on that. I said, yes, you do, because if I don't spend the time to do it right, then you're going to be calling for a retake, And you're going to call me into the office and ask me why I didn't do it right the first time. So I said, I've got the the solution right here. I'm going to take as much time as necessary to do it right. And it takes me until lunch to do the first three scenes like I did before. That's how much time I'm going to take so that it gets right. Because I'm not used to doing retakes. Uh I have enough experience working in camera to know how to do it and how to do it right. It's either that or don't give me such complicated scenes. But you're not All gonna right. get 90 feet a day out of me if you give me these complicated scenes. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not at Hanna-Barbera. We're doing fairly full tilt animation. I'm not Bill Hanna doing limited animation. This is fairly full tilt stuff, but I'll do the best I can to do a, as good of a job as I can do, but I'm gonna do it right. And you're gonna have to give me the time to do it right. So he held up the, the film footage from what came in on Friday. Mm-hmm. Did you see, this is 90 feet of retakes. I said, I'm aware of that. What episode was that? And he told me which one it was. And I said, that's very interesting because I didn't work on that episode. Huh. There's nothing to be gained by you showing it to me because I'm not responsible for it. Uh-huh. But the things that are wrong there are the things that I catch when I'm on those episodes. There were continuity errors. And this was finished animation in color. And uh-huh. half had to be redone. Wow. So I said, considering the fact that I wasn't on that episode, you had a director, you had another sheet timer, you're supposed to have had a final checker, and those three people didn't catch those errors, and it goes into production, and and it comes back, and you got to do half of it over. And I wasn't involved, so I don't know why you're talking to me. I'm not responsible for it. He said, I guess I better put you back over there with the directors. I said, you never should have moved me in the first place.
0: (laughs) <laughs> and there you have it you some have of it. the behind the scenes action
1: yeah. <laughs> to with being argumentative is it's holding your grounds and not being intimidating and letting them know that you know what you're talking about yeah Yeah. and uh, going back to when I was uh, talking about doing work for uh, Bernie Wolfe and knowing his history mm-hmm. I said uh Knowing his history, I was terrified, you know, is what I'm going to be doing good enough? And I did some cleanup work for him when he was producer on Bobby's World. And so I did it and I sort of turned it in gingerly. And I said, well, here it is and got rid of the duck, you know.
0: All right, all right.
1: Oh, this is beautiful line work. I could never, never get work this good. And he gave me this mechanical pencil
0: we have the pencil
1: (laughs) and that's that's been my good luck charm that was my good luck charm all the rest of the years i was in california and then when i interviewed him on tape i told him i still have that pencil it's been my good luck charm he said give it back
0: (laughs) (laughs) well well um you are you're collecting the physical artifacts you're collecting the the film and exploring films and uh thank you for taking part in this conversation which i i hope continues to add to the storytelling as well
1: any other questions yeah you know, uh, i'll tell you this much though one thing that i find quite stimulating and it's also interesting too and i'm going to segue a little bit mm-hmm. um one of the things about writing books about animation is that the majority of the people who have written them are not professionals.
0: Huh. So they don't have the insight that you bring.
1: No. And so a lot of it gets to be very clinical. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there've been a lot of articles that were written about Max Fleischer and everything like that. But I became quite uh, acquainted with the family and I've talked to everybody in the family, siblings and everything. And for a long time, I was a little bit reluctant to get in touch with them because it was just a a horrible situation about how that studio ended anyway. Uh And I had no way of knowing what the sentiments were within the family. And I'll say this much. It was a credit to Max and Dave that for the good or bad of it, and they were human beings, but they did not bring their family into it. So for the most part, most of them didn't really know uh, Dave's daughters told me some things that were uh, about their father that they were aware of. So I could I could reason that. And a lot of information I was given, I had to use with discretion. Yeah. They, yeah. they told me certain things that, in confidence. And I was given certain things in confidence. I was given access to papers, which uh-huh. was really quite helpful because that helped answer a lot of the questions. And then when people ask me about getting copies of these contracts and memos and everything like that, and I said, I'm sorry, but I cannot make those available because that would be a violation of a confidence. I can tell you what's in them, but I cannot make them available because once, yep. it's like letting the horse out of the barn, you know, right. When they were getting to me in confidence for my particular research, I've got something of value.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: True. And there's no reason why I should let anybody else have them. When they were given to me, under a condition,
0: and that's honoring the the people that are participating with you and telling the story that's as well. Correct.
1: That's correct, and it's it. I spent a lot of years getting the, the the trust and respect of that family, and that is a friendship that I I, I value very highly, and I would not betray those people. Uh-huh. And one of the things that, that was quite amusing when when uh, Jane Fleischer-Reed started this project. In fact, she interviewed me after my book came out. And so there are excerpts of that interview that are on the uh, Fleischer website. And I've listed there, there are links to me and that sort of thing. And I'm also part of the Fleischer All-Stars, you know, that uh, Jamie Mahoney runs. And he's uh, Seymour Natel's grandson. And anyway, um, I lost my train of thought because there's so many things going on. (laughs) uh, uh, I was talking about the the family trust and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I talked to everybody. And one of the things that a lot of them said was all these people that are writing these things, nobody ever asked us. Yeah. Yeah. And, And she said that they said a lot of these things are wrong. Why didn't they ask us? So that's what I did. I went to them, and they were so generous and so gracious, and that's how I got photographs, and um, they trusted me enough to have certain things reproduced, and I returned them. Uh Because one of the things that Ruth was quite frustrated about was she loaned some things to people and never got them back. In fact, she loaned uh, Expo 67 some materials that they never got back. she had a model of the rotoscope that they never got back
0: wow huh yeah it's uh it's a credit to the work that you you built that relationship and that you um have been given access and that you're not necessarily sharing everything that's there that they've asked you not to share that's a credit
1: this this idea about sharing has been distorted because some people think that sharing means it it gives you a license to steal Mm -hmm. which be back to my trend of thought that i had lost (laughs) uh when i was first in contact with jane when she started this restoration project i said jane now get ready because first of all you may as well understand i've been at the head of the line on this subject Before anybody else, I don't care whether they don't like my saying that because it happens to be true. Uh There are a lot of people that are upset with me because I'm credible. And one of the things that makes it difficult is that we are trying to put this thing together because all this happened before any of us were born. Right. Jane and I are of, of the generation that were born mid last century. So in that respect, we had the credibility in the fact that when we came along, these people were still alive. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so we had the, the benefit of hearing their anecdotes. That's what happened to me when I talked to the animators or uh-huh. when I when, when I met Max, when I talked to Dave, when I, I uh, talked to Lou and Joe. And, and so I, I talked to the, the brothers when they were still alive and they yeah. were still quite sharp and they went into a lot of details. And you're able to also sift through a lot of psychological aspects about certain biases or the way they felt about certain things and so forth. Naturally, you're dealing with human beings who are going to have certain um, personal insights about certain things about whether they felt somebody did something that should have been done this way or that way. Mm-hmm. You have to play all of those things because their perspectives are very valuable because they were there.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that first-hand experience absolutely right,
1: right. and they were of the same generation of my grandfather's generation and i understood how he was with his brothers so i could compare that and read read through a lot of those things and come to a, a common understanding about how this really worked and not necessarily take it verbatim just because so-and-so said something it was so right but One thing about, Joe was very good about recording everything. He kept journals. And so he was quite credible about the information that he had. So between, based on their recollections of what Joe had recorded, I was able to find a consistency in this story and put it together. And he had names of people that nobody else had. Uh So that was quite, quite valuable. So when Jane was starting this project, I said, "Now look out, Jane. When this thing gets rolling, all the crackpots are going to be coming out of the woodwork. So get ready for it." <laughs> and one of the first things was she was getting all these phone calls and all these lies and people discrediting me. Uh-huh. And they were calling up all the family members, and they said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. "And I'm still working with it." because they've known me for 50 years now. So why would they believe these people that I don't even know, people I have not done anything to. So why is it they wanna push their way in? They wanna push their way in to use the Fleischer name to get credibility for themselves. I'm not doing this to get rich. Nobody's getting rich about this. The reason why I'm doing it and the reason why we're doing it is because it's something that needed to be done. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I stress the urgency in the fact that a lot of these films have already reached the centennial. And finding any any of them in 35 millimeter form is a godsend. And we found a handful of them. But so many of that stuff has deteriorated to this point where this whole thing is like a collection of library books reaped up the bookends yeah the ones in the best condition are in the middle and that represents the paramount negatives which we've been restoring the left end of the bookends are the the pre-paramount ones in the silent era Mm -hmm. before 1927 from 1919 and 1927 and most of those we could find but when i put out my dvd There were 90 out of the inkwells before they became inkwell lamps under Paramount from 27 to 29. But from 1918 to 1927, that's the period where it's hardest to find them. And what exists for the most part is 16 millimeter. A few of them in 35 we have found. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But most of them are in, in 16 millimeter. So when I put them together in the DVD collection, I have four volumes. And of the 90, I was able to find 60. And since then, we found more of them. Uh And so that was another thing over the past 20 years, I had marketed them and put them together by theme. But now the technology has has changed where we have digital scanning, which is even better than what we had when we were on analog. Uh And so it's not so much to... Thumb in the nose at the efforts that I made 20 years ago about how awful they were, because in the at the time they were state of the art because they were done on the ranks and tell. But that was when it was analog NTSC standard, which worked at that time. That was before digital televisions. But now the standards have changed where resolution is much higher, uh-huh. which means you've got to go back and you've got to do it all over because the technology has higher standards. So it's not fair to compare something that was done 20 years ago to those standards to what we've got by today's standards. And those have been some unfortunate unfair comparisons to what I was doing back then to indicate that what I did then was useless. Mm, uh It has no value then. You know, quite frankly, that's a very disrespectful attitude to take because they still continue to be my bestseller until we can come up with something better. Yeah, And this takes a long time and it's an expensive process. And the thing of it is, we're always welcoming anybody who wants to get on board and help us make this possible. And right. it's very easy to tear something down and criticize, but it's so much more work to make it better. And I say to those who sit on their behinds and lay on the couch and carp about it, and and they're not doing anything, and nitpick about this, that, and the other, and I came up with a comeback from uh, Albert Einstein, who was smarter than any of us, and he said, anybody who makes a mistake has not done
0: anything. (laughs) I like it. I like it.